Well, here we are talking finally about marriage. I want to bring you greetings. My name is Eric Barton, and I'm coming to you live from the second floor. You've already heard from folks on the second floor, from the first floor, from the third floor. If you're visiting with us this morning, I suspect this is probably a little bit different than how you've experienced church previously, but net of the COVIDs and the snowpocalypses and all those other kinds of things, we have had to figure out technologically how to be under one roof, essentially, at the same time, and so we get to sort of spread our people out over all three floors, and it's wonderful to all be here together. So I want to bring you greetings as well. If you are visiting with us, we do want to make sure that you feel welcome and warm and as though you are able to worship. Now, we as a membership and as a church have been walking through the book of Ephesians for this entire calendar year. We took a little pause last week for, you know, oh, that uh, resurrection of Jesus thing we had at Easter, which was marvelous. But now we're right back into our study through the book of Ephesians. Now, this passage makes a whole lot of people that we're going to get to in here in just a moment, makes a lot of folks very uncomfortable because we are talking about marriage. It meets a lot of us right where we are, where the rubber hits the road. And this passage provides a lot of people the opportunity to have their particular position on gender or marriage or roles affirmed and defended, but we're not going to do that today. That's not what we're doing at all because that's really not ever what our Bibles are doing. Instead, we're going to see what a big deal the gospel is. Here at this campus, we try to say this as often as we can. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And I don't know that there's a more pressing and prescient arena that the gospel must be brought to bear than in the context and confines of marriage. So if you're here, and even if you're not presently married, perhaps you were, perhaps you're wanting to be, whatever the case, I promise this message is also practical and pertinent for you. It's still for you. Now, this gospel brings us to our big idea for the morning here in Ephesians chapter 5, and it goes like this. Marriage is the gospel. I can't say that any stronger, but I'll say it louder. Marriage is the gospel. Now, with that as a run-up and a backdrop, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. I'm going to read the entire passage in its uh, duration through the end of this chapter, and then we'll unpack it and we'll see if we can apply it. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Perhaps the least popular verse of the 21st century. We're diving right in, a cannonball into the deep end. Here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, she, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Believe it or not, this is God's holy and inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient word. This is God's truth. Well, here we go. There's nothing like preaching about marriage with your wife present. I did everything I could to send her on a bed and breakfast girls weekend or something, but no, she's here. She persists. And so I have a little bit of watch care in the works as I preach this entire sermon. But I need to draw your attention to one crucial interpretational issue with this passage. This passage, Ephesians 5, uh, 22 to 33, is probably the most well-worn passage uh, in the church about marriage. And that's really great because there's some really powerful truths and some massive principles that we can extract from this text. But please hear this. This passage really isn't primarily about marriage. Let me say this again. This passage is not primarily about marriage. This passage, because of a misunderstanding, has been ripped out of its context and been used for a grotesque misapplication and an abuse of persons against other persons. Now, this entire section that I just read, all the way chapter 6, verse 9, this entire section is actually pointing back, and then it points back again. The last imperative that Paul actually gives is way back in verse 18. What he has said is, we are to submit to one another. That's in verse 21. But even that looks back to verse 18. That's really sort of the crux and the core of the chapter is verse 18. Be filled intentionally, yet passively by the Holy Spirit. Be filled, church, in view of all the other mercies, in view of all the other doctrine, in view of all the other things that God has done, your primary burden of responsibility is to be filled with the Spirit. That is God's will if you and I will submit and subject ourselves to it. Be filled by the Spirit. How does that happen? Well, in Ephesians 5.18, he's then going to follow that with four participles. We get the stuff of singing songs together, having psalms, spiritual songs, and Songs of praise, it is submitting to one another. So, being filled with the Spirit looks like having community around worship. So when I hear people say, gosh, I don't know what this whole being filled by the Spirit thing is, the first question I say is, are you a frequent attender of a church? Because according to the Apostle Paul, it is impossible to have normalcy in filling of the Spirit, not in dwelling of the Spirit, but a normalcy in the filling of the Spirit apart from corporate worship. Now, I cannot make a big enough deal about that. And if you're not filled with the Spirit, then everything else I'm going to talk about is a literal logistical impossibility for you. So church is a really big deal. And when we sing songs like we just did and all that we sang this morning and breathe of the stars and I can see you and I can hear you, that is a filling of the Spirit. Not so that you can walk through solid walls. No, no, no. Way better than that. It's so that you can actually love your husband. It's that big of a superpower. So we have community around worship and we are filled with God's Spirit when we actively submit to one another. In other words... The primary point of this passage is that believers are to be so filled with the Spirit that it looks most powerfully and wondrously like people willingly being subject to one another, being willing, I'm going to say it, to not get their way. That's what 
being filled with the Spirit most frequently looks like a whole bunch of people in corporate church contexts and in homes and in workplaces being willing to not get their way for the greater good. And then just to make sure we need some help with that, Paul gives us three illustrations, the first of which is marriage. Then we'll talk about parenting next week and two weeks we'll talk about the workplace. So first of all, we're going to start with this whole wives situation in verse 22. Now, let me just say at the outset, (laughs) there's 12 verses here. Wives get three. Husbands, you get nine. So you might think, yeah, you get them, preach. Oh, no, I'm coming for you too, brah. So just sit tight. We're coming. Now, verse 22 says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, as a matter of fact, there's no verb here. This is actually borrowing from the verb that's way back up in verse 21. So it should really read like this. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ, wives to your husbands. He doesn't add another verb. He's saying illustratively, for example, wives to your husbands. It's this one long continuous sentence that being filled with the Spirit looks like submitting to one another, being subject to one another. Now, I have to, I have to do this. i got to call attention. Because this one verse about this subject to one another or submit to one another has caused an enormous amount of conflict and contradiction in the last couple decades. And I'm just going to speak directly at it as though I don't have an email address that you can disagree with me about. There are a lot of people that want to rip Ephesians 5.21 out of context where it says submit to one another. And they will say that is the smoking gun defense passage for this position called egalitarianism that says husbands and wives are supposed to submit to one another in the exact same way. That's what the argument says. It's built on the idea that role and function are synonymous with value and worth, and they are not. Any more than the role that the Spirit has makes him more valuable than the Son or the Father. Of course not. That would be a dangerous misunderstanding. That position says that when Paul says in 521, submit to one another, that Paul's saying in exactly the same way all the time. And I just want to say as directly but delicately as I can, that interpretation is patently false. And the text tells us so quite clearly. The the idea would go like this. Wives, obey your husbands. Husbands, obey your wives. Completely equally with no distinction in role, which sounds really nice until it completely breaks down because of the following two examples, which would go like this then. Children, submit to your parents. And parents, submit and obey your children. Oh, dear God, no. That's called a flaming dumpster fire on a boating accident waiting to happen. No, of course that's not what that can mean. No. Or how about this? Slaves obey your masters, just like masters should obey their slaves. No, of course not. That makes the text say something that Paul never intended. At the exact same time, this passage must never be used to swing the proverbial pendulum in the opposite direction of tyrannical despotism. That's equally wrong. Wives are to subject themselves to their husbands out of reverence, or really the term is fear of Christ. That's kind of weird, but it matters. Paul's doing some Old Testament language here. All throughout the Old Testament, they were commended to do things out of the fear of Yahweh, out of the fear of Yahweh, out of the fear of Yahweh. But in the New Testament, the expression and the manifestation is out of the fear of Christ, who is God. So, wives, you are to submit and subject your will to that of your husband, not in the exact same way that you subject yourselves to Jesus. That's a gross misapplication because you might have noticed 
your husband's not Jesus. I'm looking forward to all of your time of testimony about that. No, not in the exact same way, but because of your submission and respect of the risen Lord Jesus, because of the Christ, Messiah, out of that flows are subjugating our will to that of our husband. They are submitted because they are subject to Jesus. And so what we're going to see in verse 23 is that there are, in fact, roles. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. There are roles. But Paul is wanting to make sure that you and I keep as a caveat verse 18 and verse 21, being filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another. In other words, he assumes that each person involved in the marriage are spirit-filled with cross-shaped egos. That's what he means when he says, out of reverence for Christ, out of fear of the Lord, that you are spirit-filled and that you have a cross-shaped ego. Let me tell you how this works. Early on in my marriage, I sat in our living room and I said something really brilliant like, I could have sworn I wanted a piece of pie. I know, <laughs> Rotator cuff injury in three, two, one. And she didn't move. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll say it louder. I could have sworn I wanted a piece of pie. And she's like, you know where it is. I'm like, what's happening? My whole worldview just imploded. That's what my dad used to say to my mom. And she would jump up and she wouldn't go and get it. See, my ego was still family system shaped. And praise be to God, I was given a wife who was handy with spikes and hammers. <laughs> and so she helped reform me into a cross-shaped ego. And so as I worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, as I subject my will not just to her and to other people, man, my ego increasingly becomes cross-shaped. Now, candidly, most of us never get this far in the passage. We just hear, obey, respect. There's so much more going on here. Paul pulls no punch in verse 23 for the existence of roles. That's because Paul is subject himself to the truth of God's word. And so we have to be as well, despite our offense, despite our desire for it to say or mean something different than what it actually does. The husband, in God's ordained model of marriage, has authority, which most often looks like, watch, watch, responsibility. That's the key. The wife does not give account for the spiritual maturity of her husband, but the husband is accountable for hers. Now, fellas, how's that going? When you stand before the risen Lord Jesus, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and you go, well, this woman that you gave me, try again. That's not going to go well. The authority is given precisely for that reason, because he is responsible, and so he must have the authority to make decisions that support his responsibility. Responsibility without authority is maddening and devastating. Some of you experience that in your workplace. You have all this responsibility, but you don't actually have the authority to get it accomplished, and it's, it's crushing. The same is true in a marriage. God gives the man authority because he has responsibility. She doesn't have that. But that authority is never about rulership or dominance, ever. The husband is the head of the house in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And the church is never equally the head over Christ. No, of course not. No, Christ is the savior of the church. And illustratively, the husband is to assume a similar role. But the husband is not a savior. He cannot atone for sin. He cannot impute righteousness. So let's not make this text say more than it's actually saying. 
So finally, there we get in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago before Easter. The term submit comes from a Greek term, hupotasso, means to line up under the rose. It's a military idea that you subject your will to that of another who has been granted authority and responsibility for a greater good. It's never just to be cowed or to be humiliated. No, it is always for a greater good. As the church submits or subjects its will to Christ, so too must wives trust their husbands and submit or subject their will to their husbands. I know, I know. Your husband isn't quite as trustworthy as Jesus. I get it. We're going to circle back to that momentarily. And clearly, let me say this as directly as I can, submitting in everything does not mean everything, including that which is sin or contrary to the law and the will of God, violence, abuse, any of those kinds of things. Of course not. So we must never abuse that. Now, it's really interesting that that's as specific as it gets. Wives submit. But there's nothing in either testament that says with specificity what exactly that means, how it looks. So, so who gets to make all the decisions? I don't know who's better at that. Who gets to handle the checkbook? I don't know who's better at that. Who gets to do this? I don't know. You get to learn that and you get to figure that out together. People feel like this command of of God is very binding and restrictive and old-fashioned, but it isn't. There's no particulars anywhere in the Bible that detail with specificity how it works. It's remarkably vague and requires two people being filled with the Spirit to move from being principles in Scripture to the small details of living life symbiotically, where they actually come together. And what we find out is that it's not just a symbiotic life of one plus one. There's one man and his wife and the Spirit of God make up this third thing that is a living, breathing, wedded covenant existence. It's a marvelous, mysterious thing. Well, wives, that's it. You get three verses. Fellas, we get nine. So here we go. So this might feel like the uh, intensification of the, uh, the, the crosshairs or the spotlight or the interrogation lamp. Well, wear it well. Here we go. Husbands, love your wives. Why does Paul say that? For the same reason I say, don't run in the house with scissors. Because this is agapao, your wife. Actively seek, pursue, deliberately go after her highest volitional good. That is not natural. That requires a supernatural. And so Paul gives the command because he's addressing a fallen condition. It was certainly not happening culturally. It was certainly not happening societally. Although Paul says, I want this to be one of the hallmarks of the church. That husbands, you seek your wife's good even above your own. Now, I got to tell you, that's convicting. Husbands, love your wives. See, we have to understand this. Then as now, very few people understand what marriage is and what it's really for. It's 2021. You would think by now, everyone pretty much understands marriage. Nope. For millennia, marriage was merely a way of extending your resources and your assets, of extending your influence, or building up your family's uh, wealth and protection. But then comes Western civilization and says, no, that's not actually good enough. Marriage is actually about romance and happiness and personal fulfillment and joy. Both models are wrong. Neither one of those approaches at marriage are biblically sound. In fact, they're both very dangerous and incredibly destructive. 
Most, if not all of us, probably went into marriage with one or two of those approaches. Marriage is, in fact, the arena in which one person subjects their will to another for the sake of the other to bring them into glory because that's what Jesus did. You see, marriage is the gospel. Now, we're going to unpack this at great length to sort of redefine, rearticulate what is the glory of marriage. Jesus sought and he seeked and he will seek our highest possible good because he loves us. That's what he, agapao, he loves us so that he might sanctify his bride, make her holy and blameless and spotless. He tells her true things about herself. You know, that's what Jesus does. Tells us in Hebrews that he sings songs over us now. That Jesus, the groom, speaks words of truth into and over his bride, whether or not they feel it or recognize it. It's still true. What if the church was only defined by the words of Jesus? She is. Fellas, what if your wife was almost exclusively defined by the words of truth that you speak into and over her? That's what Paul means when he says, by the washing of the water of the word, speaking truth. You are a crucial aspect of forging her identity by speaking that which is true, especially when she doesn't feel like it. And if you're so worried about getting your own needs met, that means you're not spirit-filled and you'll never, ever do that. That's why Paul has to say this so strongly. We will give an account, so we have to think wisely and walk wisely. That requires being filled with the Spirit. It's an impossibility otherwise. It's utterly impossible. Now, let me just say this. This, for men, this is a really, really narrow lane on which to move in the role of a husband. And there are so many competing messages that are bombarding us, plus our sin nature, that confuse things in our lives all the time. On the one edge of this narrow lane is this idea of patriarchalism that emphasizes male rulership and female obedience. And that is not the biblical theme at all. So if that's you, repent. There is grace for that. But you must repent and come back to the center of this lane. On the other edge of the lane is passivity, where the male abdicates authority because he wants no responsibility. If that's you, repent. There is grace, but you must repent and come back into the center line of what it means to be a Christ-like groom and husband. Both of those edges of the lane are error, and we have to be spirit-filled to love our wives. How does that happen? Corporate worship being subject to one another at other times as well. Well, verse 28, we're going to pick up speed here in just a moment. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here's where we really see the shocking awe of the gospel. We get this notion of oneness. We just always carry with us this act of awareness of our union with and our position in Christ. We are his body in this world. And Jesus loves his body. You think about that. Jesus loves his body and we are it. In the same way that Jesus loves his body, in the same way that a man loves his own body and wants its needs met, he wants those of his wife met even more. Huh. Really? Is that, is that you? Is that me? Hmm. It requires being filled with the Spirit. Now do we see the need for the gospel. It is our only hope. And marriages exist to be the primary demonstration of the gospel in this world. 
Did you know that? Marriages are to be the primary demonstration of the glory of the gospel in this world. It's not a cute little track. It's not a Roman road pamphlet. It's not even a Billy Graham crusade. It is marriages, these little contexts spread all over the world where we get to see what it's like when there are different roles and functions submitting in love to one another, actively seeking the good of the other over the self. That's the gospel. See, marriage is the gospel. And if you or I are still approaching marriages, yeah, but when are my needs going to get met? I will suggest to you as strongly as I can, never! So long as you're trying to meet your own needs, you will never have them met. But you will find that when you subject your will and seek someone else's highest good above your own, then you will be fulfilled. This is where the gospel isn't just about going to heaven one day when I die. It is saying, oh Christ, you are enough. I lack for nothing. I am striving for nothing. I need not grasp. I have all that I need. I am now unleashed to pour into this other person. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. What if she doesn't? Not your project. Not your program, not your priority. Millions of contexts of people doing that, the gospel is glorified. Well, Paul's going to do what Paul does in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul does biblical theology. He has no apology for the fact that what he is saying is rooted in creation and that there are roles and functions and they have priorities over others. That's okay. The husband and wife relationship trumps and transcends that of parent-child. There are roles, there are functions, and some are more important than others. And that's God-ordained as we see in creation. Why does he do that? What's he talking about? Because this is the gospel. It's oneness. When we're given little hints of this, in the Old Testament, I've had the opportunity to spend some time in counseling with some of you, pre-marriage, post-marriage. In Malachi 2.15, when we're told that the Spirit of God himself, with a portion of his Spirit, is in unity. And there's this third thing that comes into life. And that third thing, having life in this world, is a radiating emitter of the gospel. And that that is our primary locus of care and feeding. It's that thing. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, Paul says in verse 32, this is the payoff. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the payoff. It's telling us that what this text is really about in all is that it gives the actual power for the actual change in our marriage. It's the gospel. It's not trying harder. It's not going to a seminar. It's really receiving the gospel. Marriage is not the thing that was out there in the world, and so God chose to relate himself to us because we would understand that through marriage. No, that's how God has always related to people. And so he creates marriage to reflect and resemble how he feels about us. It's not like God just took marriage and goes, oh, that's pretty cool. I'll relate to humankind that way. No, he created marriage because that's how God relates to us from the very, very beginning. Sacrificially, rebels who don't deserve it, who shake their fists at him and say, you're not meeting my needs. God says, I love you. I'm going to meet yours in such abundance you will never, ever be able to wrap your soul around it. That's the glory of the gospel. God relates to us this way, for our good to sanctify us and present us as glorious. And so because of that, he created the covenant and institution of marriage to model and reflect how he loves us. Really, marriage is the gospel. Well, in verse 33, he wraps all this up, this first illustration. 
gives us his conclusion statement. However, he says, let each one of you love his wife. He repeats himself because, gentlemen, we tend to have thick craniums. And repetition is the mother of learning, and so we have to be told again. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another is the greatest proclamation of the gospel that we have because it's very real, it's very near, and it's so pervasive. So love and lead and guide and guard your wife like you love yourself, like Christ loves the church. Hmm. He was willing and he was ready to die for the church, for her greater good and glory, and he went first. He didn't wait for his need to sort of like, okay, you meet my need a little bit, and then I'll engage. No, 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 no. He instigated. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I hear this frequently. My wife needs to obey me. I'm like, great. When's the last time you died for her? No, not physically. That's Creepsville. I mean, when's the last time you didn't get your way for her sake? Well, that's not what this is about. It's precisely what this is about. Just like Jesus, who submitted his will to somebody else for our sake. Now that's amazing. Women, wives, in like manner, respect your husband and don't make his responsibility a beating and a burden. Respect him and lead up with wisdom and grace. Now this is a massive passage and I need to go as quickly as I can, but I have to apply this with four principles, applications, or implications. Four implications just to tie all this together. There's about a hundred more but I just, I'm, I'm pulling these four out because I think they're so prescient based on who we are as a people in this context at this time. Number one goes like this. Submission. I know it's a dirty word. It was in Greco-Roman cultures. It is in our as well. But submission simply means subjecting my will to another for the greater good. So submission means subjecting my will to another for for the greater good. And we all do it already all the time. It is amazing to me. I'll see some guy in an F850 truck that's about like that high off the ground. He literally has to have an escalator installed to get up into his truck and he's flying down the street. And then some 14-year-old kid crossing guard walks out on Copeland and holds up a stop sign. And the dude in the Hujongas truck yields to the 14-year-old in the orange vest. Because he's subjecting his will to that of another for the greater good. Because that guy's actually there to protect his kids, do you see? We all subject ourselves. All the time we do it in church. We do it in government. We all subject our wills to other people for the common good. Sergeants submit to captains because captains have the authority and the responsibility and they must carry out the mission that he or she is given. But of course, it doesn't mean that sergeants can't approach a captain for a, and say, hey, I have additional information that you might not know. Here's some counsel. I want this mission to succeed as well. Ah, I didn't know that. I can't tell you how many times this has happened in my own marriage where I've said, hey, I've made a decision. This is what we're going to do. And she will say, mm, okay, that's fine, that's your call, but have you thought about X, Y, and Z? And I'll say, no, because I don't think about things. And so I repent and we make a different decision. She's not saying, you know, I am usurping your authority. No, she's going, your call, but listen, I'm not responsible. Good luck with all that. I'm like, no, 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 I didn't know all that stuff because I don't, you know, here again, think about things. The greater good is way more important than me getting my way. In fact, she is more important than me getting my way. Now, where do I get a notion like that? Jesus. 
So submission is subjecting my will to another for the greater good. Number two, function and role do not determine value and worth. That is a lie. That is an error from our civilization, culture, and society. That is false. There is a thought that says if you have this role, then you are inferior ontologically, meaning in actual essence and value. That is patently false. That is not the biblical model. I recognize that our culture does not like that statement, but it's the simple truth evident in all the created order and in all of our institutions. But more than that, it's rooted in the existence and in the reality of our triune God. Here again, Jesus. Look at Jesus in the garden, praying that the Father's will be done above his own. Does that mean that Jesus, the Son of God, is less than the Father? May it never be spoken. Of course not. But he does subject his will to someone else for a greater good. Look at the Spirit, always demurring and deflecting attention to Jesus, who is always pointing to the Father. Neither of those persons is in any way inferior. Look at the Apostle Paul, who tells the Corinthians, these were some knuckle-dragging infected people, the Corinthians. They were gross. And Paul says, I have made myself your bondservant. Never abdicating his authority nor his responsibility, but he subjects himself to them for their greater good. Part of God's multifaceted glory is demonstrated in the created order and that there, there is so much variety and difference and function and role, and it's good. But we must never be so apathetic and arrogant as to abuse those roles. Third point. This is where you want to expose your digits because this is where I get to stomp a bit. Third point goes like this. Prioritize spirit-filled marriages more than morally appropriate marriages. Prioritize spirit-filled marriages more than morally appropriate marriages. Of course morality matters, but it is the fruit always and not the root. The spirit is the root. I know and you know that marriage has come under a lot of fire in the last several years in Western civilization and in our country in particular, and many of us are upset. We have fought so hard to protect something important that we have thrown out something so much more valuable. Spirit-filled building blocks of society. In our zeal to protect marriage as being between a heterosexual man and woman, we have forgotten that marriage is way more than that. It's to be spirit-filled. All these people who are generally griping about marriage being under fire have no evidence of being spirit-filled in their home. There's brokenness, animosity, anger, resentment, and hatred. Clamoring for morally appropriate marriages, wondering why the gospel is not being proclaimed. No, 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 no. We are to prioritize spirit-filled marriages, and the morally appropriate stuff will come out of that. You see, marriage is the gospel. Most of us go on these adventures and missing the point, and we try to resist sin and resist temptation, and we make ourselves bitter and hostile and resentful because we're just trying not to get in trouble. We're trying not to get caught or whatever it is. There's no spirit-filling in my marriage. I just want my marriage to look good, and I want everyone else's to look like mine too or what I think it looks like so that we can all like agree with one another and vote the same. It's really weird that the gospel's not proclaimed in our marriages. No, we are to prioritize spirit-filled marriages more than morally appropriate marriages. Rather than resisting sin and all the things that make us angry and unsettled, we are to be emitting light, actively, sometimes publicly, finding ways to subject our wills to that of our spouse for her good, for our good, for this third thing that exists. 
This passage is teaching that we are to be intentionally filled by the Spirit, and that's God's will, if we'll submit ourselves to it, that the Spirit-filled marriage is what gives life, not being morally appropriate. Fourth point, marriage is a covenant, not contract. Now, this is huge. Marriage is covenant, not contract. Many of us claim the gospel, we cling to the gospel, and we say that we believe it. But marriage and family are the arena in which the gospel often has the hardest time breaking us free of our fallenness and our depravity. We grasp and we clutch because we think that we need more, because we really don't believe that we have what we need in Christ. Because of that consumeristic contract approach, we are no different than the lost world when it comes to divorce and broken homes. It looks the same. Oh, you've got a better deal over there? I can get more for less? I'm in on that. Goodbye, you. And that is never how marriages were supposed to be treated as disposable relationships. It's because we have this tendency to operate under the default contractual assumption that I will serve you and meet your needs at exactly the same level that you meet mine, or maybe a little bit less, but you go first because my needs matter more than yours. I just described the lion's share of marriages in our context. I will meet your needs. It's give and take, right? No, it's give. That's your end of the bargain. Because there's no bargain, do you see? A contract is a bargain that two people strike to get what they want. And the tragedy is both people are dangerously unqualified and under-equipped to meet their end of the bargain. No human being could ever do that except Jesus, and he already has. And our society, in every movie, pop song, and book, our society says that you must meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and when you do, your life will work out perfectly. But it never has ever. We all have a tendency to look for a mate that is essentially fully formed and matured. (laughs) But that's impossible because they haven't been married to you yet. You're looking for someone who's already fully baked. Nope. They've not been married to you yet. How could they be? No chance. In fact, Susan and I have been together for very many years. And essentially, we practically raised one another through adolescence to this very day. And clearly, she's a much better person than I am, so I've done a much better job. (laughs) See, the reality is, all of us married the wrong person. Can I just release some of the pressure in the room? Stanley Arhwas from Duke University says this, we all married the wrong person. Have you noticed that the person you dated is not the same one that you're married to? (laughs) Of course not, because we change. See, covenant says, I'm going to learn how to love the stranger to whom I am now married, and I'm going to give my life away. As a proclamation of the gospel, I'm not in this deal to get something from you. That's lostness. I believe the gospel. I have all that I need for life and godliness. I'm now married to someone who is different than he or she was three decades ago. Praise God, I get the joy, as Steve Perry from Journey said, of rediscovering you and serving your good above my own again and again and again. Now, a covenant is a solemn binding built for the purpose of blessing. It is the primary thing. It's not a bargain where I contractually, transactionally get what I want if I give you what you want. No, 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 no. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. That's how the marriage works because that's how the gospel works from Jesus' vantage point. It's the new covenant that Christ began in his body with us, him for us, 
And yes, us now for him, our marriages are to be the contest to see who can outdo the other in service. You see, marriage is the gospel. Do you really understand what it means to be in love? No. And I don't either. And so for that, we have to look at Jesus. Do you understand what Jesus sees when he sees you and me in our lostness? He sees you and me in our lostness, and he wants our good. There is no capacity whatsoever for recompense. We cannot pay him back anything. He has the cattle on a thousand hills and the entirety of the cosmos. But Jesus looks at us. You know what he sees? He sees what I'm going to look like that day when Jesus does come back and every ounce, every molecule of my fallenness, my brokenness, my sin, my selfishness, all of my arrogance, apathy, all of my attitude, all of that stuff, when it's all ripped away and gone finally forever, he sees that. And he goes, oh, I can't wait for you to see what you're going to be one day. I love that, and I'm going to be actively engaged in that. And you're going to change throughout your life. You're going to have health issues. You're going to have relational stresses, financial, all these kinds of things. But I can't wait to see what you're going to look like on that day. Falling in love with someone is seeing them like Jesus sees them. I cannot wait to see what you're going to look like. And I get to be a part of washing you with the water of the word. I get to be a part of that the sanctifying of the bride. I get to do that here and now. My project, who cares? You are going to be glorious for all eternity. Oh my God, you're going to be glorious for all eternity. And I get to be a part of that. But you can't do that by trying harder. You're going to leave here. You're going to go to Arby's. You're going to get two roast beef and cheddars. And you're going to forget all about this unless you understand Jesus how much he loves you and how he is actively doing that in you now. And you come back as often as you can to corporate worship where you are filled with the spirit so that it splatters and explodes in your home. You have no other hope. Jesus is the answer and marriage is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this word and I know that it's heady and I pray God that whatever I have said that was off the mark or incorrect You will redeem and nail to the cross, and it's gone. Whatever I have misspoken or overspoken, Father, would you give grace there? If any of us need to continue to hear these words, to listen to it again, I pray, God, that you will continue to do a work by your Spirit, among your people, through your Word. Father, I do pray right now for marriages that are struggling, that are not Spirit-filled, that are trying to be socially acceptable or merely get through. I pray, God, that you would do a new work, a redemptive recreation in that midst. You would bring dead things to life because that's what the gospel does. And we need those marriages, Father, to be whole. And you can make dead things come to life. So I pray for nothing less than that. Father, for those that are spirit-filled marriages that are giving the gospel just by how they love one another, praise you for that. I pray encouragement, blessing, and joy on them. I pray for a rekindling of enthusiasm to do precisely that. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning on any of our floors or watching remotely who does not know you, who is just trying to slug this out in their own strength, oh Father, would you break their hearts 
Would you convict them of the reality that your son Jesus is who he says he was and he did what he said he would do? And you, would you flood their lives with the gospel in every nook and cranny? God, I pray that you would do exactly as I have prayed or even greater because you're just that good and loving. So I pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.